Good morning. Good to see you on this third Sunday of Advent. I have a couple of things to mention as we begin. One being, if you're thinking about a Bible reading plan for the new year, um, we don't want to pull you away from anything that you're used to doing, but if you're looking to shake it up or you don't have a plan and you're looking for one, got good news for you. In fact, this was supposed to come out a week from today, but I think somebody must have threatened to burn down the office or something because when I showed up this morning, Pam Dancer's like, look at what we have here. So here's our Bible reading plan. You can pick it up out there at the uh, usher's desk. It's also available online, and it'll take you through the Bible in a single year, or just the Old Testament, or just the New Testament. And instead of taking you from Genesis to Revelation, it'll take you through the story of the Bible in chronological order. So there you go, uh, Bible reading plan for 2023, available in print back there at the desk and then online at gracevfree.org. And then this is something I've been doing with a couple other folks here at Grace. This is called Sermon Notebook. And you can get it uh, actually, I think you can get it from the Grace Bookstore, which is a tab at gracevfree.org. This is published by Matthias Media, and it's a way to drill down a little deeper each week on the sermons that you regularly hear. So there's, there's room in here to take notes, and then there are some questions that it asks of you each week, like, I never knew, and you can jot down what it's brand new from the sermon. I was reminded of. You can jot that. I still want to know. And other questions like that. And then about every six sermons or so, there's a whole review section. So you can drill down even deeper as you look back on uh, what you've been hearing and what you've been learning on Sunday morning. So Sermon Notebook, Matthias Media. And again, I, I believe that's available uh, through the Grace Bookstore online. And then, I am so jacked up. This is beautiful. And I, I was thinking as I was driving around the other day, this has nothing to do with uh, my sermon, but it does have to do with Christmas. Um, Christmas this year is like a double espresso. Why do we meet on Sunday morning? We meet on Sunday morning and no longer on Saturday, the last day of the week, in favor of the first day of the week, because it's on the first day of the week that Jesus uh, rose from the dead, right? So worship, corporate worship went from Saturday to Sunday, the Lord's Day. And so there's a sense, a very real sense, in which every Sunday is Easter Sunday, as we remember the power of the resurrection. But this year, the calendar works out in such a way whereby uh, we remember Christ's incarnation on a Sunday, the day we remember, his, we remember his resurrection. So on that one single day, we cover the breadth of Jesus' earthly ministry, his incarnation, which uh, we will remember in a festive fashion, as well as his resurrection and the power of it in which we live. So uh, just a way to, to think about Christmas this year being on Sunday. All right, I think that's all the stuff I had to go through. 
Well, as Kenny mentioned, and you see on the front of your bulletin, this year's Advent series is entitled Child of Promise. And it covers Old Testament promises made by God, which were fulfilled in the New Testament incarnation of Christ. Uh, So there was God's promise to Adam that he would completely crush our adversary. And Rob Lister very carefully showed us uh, that. And then last week, uh, uh, God's promise to Abraham that he would fully bless all the families of the earth. And Junior very passionately showed us that. And then this morning, God's promise to Moses that he would entirely satisfy his standard of right and wrong. And then next Sunday, uh, God's promise to David that he would eternally establish his reign over all creation. And Eric Tanis will show us that. So again, these are Old Testament promises that find their New Testament fulfillment in the Messiah. Now, it's important to note that that these intertestamental connections that point us to the Christ of Christmas are not manufactured. That is to say, Old Testament persons and prophecies are not retrofitted to the life story and the, and the, and the teachings of Jesus, though it can seem that way. I, I can remember as a boy thinking, and that means Jesus? I I couldn't put the two together. But that happens when those things are taken out of either grammatical or historical context. Now, from the time that God promised to crush the head of the adversary in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, people were on the lookout for the head crusher. Now, uh, that happened down through time. Uh, And it happened in a variety of ways that that God showed them how to recognize this one. Uh, Nancy Guthrie is a very effective Bible teacher. In fact, you'll notice in your bulletin this morning that she'll be here at Grace in the new year on May 20th, giving her a workshop on biblical theology for women. But she's also an effective writer uh, for adults as well as children. And Recently, Nancy addressed this matter of Old Testament promise and New Testament fulfillment in a book that you can find on the traveling book cart that makes its way around our campus here for children. Not today, probably, but it's there. And it's entitled, I See Jesus. It's published by 10 of those. And in that book for children, Nancy writes these words. When I stand in the sun and look down, I can see my shadow. It looks a lot like me, but it isn't me. The Old Testament is full of shadows. And when we look at these shadows, we can see something that looks a lot like Jesus. Just like we can't see everything about ourselves in our own shadows, we don't see everything about Jesus in his shadows. But we do see some things about who he will be, what he will do, and how he will save. That's pretty good. And so the question that we want to answer this morning is, in what ways did the person and the work of Moses 
foreshadow the Messiah and thereby tell us who he would be, what he would do, and how he would save. And fulfill the promise at which we'll look in Deuteronomy 18. In fact, we already uh, read it. Kenny read it uh, for us earlier up there on the screen that God would send another prophet, namely the Messiah, who would be just like him, just like Moses. So that's, that's the way forward this morning. How did Moses foreshadow the Messiah, whose birth we are remembering in this season? But by way of introduction, I think it's, it's helpful to point out, if you've never thought about this before, it's especially helpful to recognize that Moses knew the Messiah. Moses knew the Messiah. The Messiah is seen throughout the scriptures. Uh, in the first four books of the New Testament, of course, he is incarnated, or as Char- Charles Wesley put it, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. But in the Old Testament, we see him in his pre-incarnate state and in a variety of places. So for example, uh, in Proverbs 8, he's creating the cosmos with the Father. Or in Genesis 32, he's wrestling under the stars with Jacob. Or in Daniel chapter 3, he's standing in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, in the life of Moses, we see the pre-incarnate Christ popping up on a number of occasions as the angel of the Lord. Angel is the Bible's word for messenger. So, uh, when Moses spoke to God out of the burning bush, he was speaking to God's messenger, the pre-incarnate Messiah. Here, Exodus 3, beginning in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, and he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We see him again at the Red Sea. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt, the onrushing, murderous uh, army that was out to take down God's people, and the host of Israel. In other words, in that way, the angel of the Lord saved Israel. And concerning that historic occasion, the psalmist wrote, he led his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. We see him again on Mount Sinai where we read in Acts 7 that the angel spoke to Moses and he received living oracles to give to us. We see him in the wilderness where God told Moses, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. And here's why for he will not pardon your transgression. Wait a minute. I thought only God could pardon transgressions. Oh, but it goes on. For my name is in him. Nine chapters later, we read again, 
But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. And so Isaiah wrote, and he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and he carried them all the days of old. We see this pre-incarnate Messiah most clearly identified by two New Testament apostles, one being Paul, who said concerning Israel's desert sojourn these words, 1 Corinthians 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And then Jude, that last little one-chapter book before the final book in the Bible, verse number five, says this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Fascinating. So Moses' foreshadowing of the Messiah was enriched by way of their relationship, which really clears up the confusion when you get to Exodus 33, 11, and, and, and you read these words. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But nine verses later, the Lord says to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. How do you reconcile that? Well, Moses couldn't look on the face of God the Father, but he could look into the face of God the Son, the pre-incarnate Messiah. And in this way, Moses knew the Lord and grew in his likeness. And that's why Moses' life so effectively foreshadowed, and here comes point number one, effectively foreshadowed who the Messiah would be. Moses did this by way of his similar, though not not identical, but similar life uh, to that of Jesus. For example, both men had mothers who, when they were babies, already perceived their greatness. Uh, Moses' mother, Jochebed, in Exodus 2. Jesus' mother, Mary, in Luke, chapter 2. Both men had lives that were imperiled as infants. Moses' life uh, was required by Pharaoh. Jesus' life was required by Herod. Both men were betrayed by those who were closest to them. Uh, Moses by his brother and sister, Numbers chapter 12. Jesus by his disciples, most notably Judas Iscariot, whose betrayal led to his death, and Simon Peter, whose profane denial occurred three times over. Both men, on notable occasions, radiated the glory of God. Uh, Moses, after having been in the presence of God up on Mount Sinai, and then Jesus, well, revealing that he was God uh, uh, in Moses' presence on top of the Mount of Olives. You'll you'll remember that uh, moment of his transfiguration. Both men were humble. Uh, Moses was the humblest man on the face of the earth, Numbers 12, 3, and Jesus was the humblest man who ever lived, Philippians 2, 8. And both men were lawgivers. 
They were both lawgivers. Moses delivered God's Old Testament law from the heights of Sinai, and Jesus delivered what some consider to be God's New Testament law, the Sermon on the Mount, from the heights of Galilee, in which he said, don't think that I've come to abolish the Old Testament law, Moses' law, the Torah. No, I haven't come to abolish it, but rather to fulfill it, Matthew 5, 17. So Moses foreshadowed who the Messiah would be by way of his life history, his character, and his role as a lawgiver. And as a lawgiver, here comes point number two, Moses foreshadowed what the Messiah would do. Now, early in Scripture, God expressed his standard of righteousness, his standard of right and wrong, his standard for human flourishing, if you will. And it's a standard that was delivered by God to Moses on Mount Sinai and then by Moses to the people. First on the front end of their 40 years in the desert, that's the book of Exodus beginning in about chapter 20 right to the end, and then again on the back end of their 40 years in the desert, and that's the book of Deuteronomy in total. In fact, that's Moses' farewell sermon. Now, that standard that God laid forth cuts two ways. On the one hand, it reveals what the Lord expects of those whom he has created, which is in some to love him and to love one another. And those are good things, things in which we should delight, things on which we should meditate, things about which we should sing because, as Moses put it, there are no empty words for you. In fact, they are your very life. Deuteronomy 32, 47. But on the other hand, God's standard reveals that when it comes to loving him and loving others, we come up short. As David put it in the Old Testament, there is none who does good, not even one. Paul says in the New Testament, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? And then in the Anglican prayer book we read, we've left undone those things that we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. So while the law revealed God's expectations for us, and that's a good thing, the law also revealed our inability to live up to those expectations. And that is a sad and heavy and burdensome thing. You can think of the law like a mirror. A mirror. A mirror tells us the truth about ourselves. I was sitting in the living room this morning next to the fire going over my sermon and I happened to turn and see myself in the mirror. It startled me because of what I saw, you know, like I combed my hair with a hand grenade or something like that. So a, a, a mirror tells us the truth. A mirror tells us what needs to be addressed, but a mirror can't do for us what's required. To take it a little further, in the morning, 
The answer to your mirror's honesty is not by taking it off the wall and applying it to your face. No, it tells you what the problem is, but what you need is something beyond what the mirror has to offer, like a a razor or a brush. And it's in this way that, and here comes point number three, Moses foreshadowed how the Messiah would save. About halfway through his farewell sermon, Moses said this. It's what Kenny read to us earlier. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, just as God had put his words in Moses' mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him, just as Moses had done and was doing. Moses and Jesus said exactly what God asked of them. You, you can trace Moses' fastidiousness in, the, in this regard from about Exodus 6 right on through the end of uh, the book and then all the way through Deuteronomy. He and Aaron, what God tells them to do, that's, that's exactly what they say. And Jesus is the same way. Jesus said, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say, what to speak. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me to say. John 12, 49 and 50. And in this regard, I think it's very safe to say that neither Moses nor Jesus ever had an original thought. Because they said exactly what God wanted them to. They were entirely true to his word. And this kind of obedience too, and this kind of fidelity with God's word was the job of every prophet who followed Moses. To remind God's people of his law, to call them back to his law, since it's the habit of every human being to wander from it. I mean, you go through the Old Testament and what are they doing? Reminding, remembering chastising because of their forgetting of the law, and then to point them toward the one by whom it would be fulfilled, the prophet like Moses, by way of the law, which Paul referred to as a tutor, one who taught them who to look for and how to look for him. And this is why when Jesus came on the scene, the question was, are you the prophet? I mean, are you the prophet, capital T, capital P? The prophet for whom we've been waiting and looking over all these generations? And soon enough, the answer came back. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. He came. And that's why Following the resurrection, the gospel was advanced upon the foundation that's explained to us in Acts chapter 3 that Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. That is the arrival of the prophet, capital T, capital P, in the person of Jesus Christ. So what does all this mean? 
What does it mean that God sent the Messiah who was foreshadowed by Moses? What does it mean that God satisfied in the Messiah his standard of right and wrong? Well, it means two things. It means that God is trustworthy. he's, He's worthy of our trust. God tells the truth. He made a promise to Moses and he fulfilled it in Jesus. He didn't forget about it. He didn't remember it and then try to jerry-rig something in Jesus. No, he made a promise and he fulfilled it in Jesus. Um, Listen to Romans 15. Kenny mentioned this earlier. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is, the Jews. Why? To show God's truthfulness. That is to say, God did what he said he'd do. And then even more specifically, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, like Moses, he made good on his word to Moses. Well, Jackson's not here anymore, so somebody's got to quote John Piper. So listen to John Piper on God's trustworthiness. Christ came to prove that God tells the truth, that God keeps his promises. Christmas means God can be trusted. Christmas is the reassertion of the foundation of all truth and goodness and beauty because Christmas means God is truthful. And that is especially important, that is especially meaningful to us in a culture where truth is up for debate. Uh, What comes out of the government? What comes out of the academy? What comes offline? What comes from you fill in the blank? And, And that's why Piper goes on to write this. God's truthfulness is the constant in a universe of flux. There are times when we just don't know what to believe, do we? Piper says, God's truthfulness is the unwavering absolute. If we forsake God's truthfulness, then the anchor's up, the rudder's loose, the keel is broken, and the ship of life is simply at the mercy of the wind of human human, uh, wishes. But it's not. Because... Christmas means God can be trusted. Christmas means that God is truthful. And that, friends, is a beautiful gift, especially if you have been the recipient over the course of your life or maybe recently of lies. Lies from a parent, from a professor from a friend. Maybe even lives that you tell yourself. I'm worthless. No one cares. I'm better off dead. None of which are true. None of which are true because God is truthful. And the truth of Christmas, and and, and here's the second thing that all of this means. The second thing is that God is praiseworthy. 
He's worthy of our praise. And he's praiseworthy because his truth gives us hope. He gives us a future. We don't have to trust in government or the academy or social media. We don't have to listen to the lies that we're told or we tell ourselves. No, in Jesus, God satisfied his standard of right and wrong such that the law, which once condemned us, was fulfilled by Jesus, who now saves us. So let's go back to Romans 15. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, like Moses, and in order that the Gentiles, which I would assume most of us here, if not all of us, might glorify God for his mercy. That this thing that was given originally to Israel has now been given to all. And therefore, Paul, sa- Paul, Paul starts praising God and he starts doing it by grabbing scriptures from throughout the Old Testament. He says, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's from 2 Samuel 22. And again it is said, this time in Deuteronomy, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again from the Psalms, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Christmas will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So Paul ends this passage here with a big, fat Christmas wish, one that begins and ends with hope. And here's how it goes. May the God of hope, he says, that is the the trustworthy God of Christmas, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope, overflow with hope. Not only hope in what occurred when the Messiah came at Christmas, the residuals of which we still enjoy, but also hope in what will occur. And according to Revelation 15, we sing. Not a new song. You you would think that something that's yet to come, yet to be fulfilled, would require a new song. But no, Revelation 15 says on that day, we'll sing an old song, the song of Moses, which once was a shadow of the things to come, but then will be sung in the fullness of its glory. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. On that day, everybody will see the full picture in its truth and the fullness of its hope. So, come let us adore him. Come let us adore the child of promise. A promise kept and yet to be kept. 
a promise that reminds us of the days when God was with us and the days when we will be with God forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all these promises that you have fulfilled in Christ. And today we take great hope in the fact that uh, he has fulfilled the law which was delivered to Moses. He has given us uh, uh, the freedom that comes with that fulfillment and a day to look forward to when in total we will stand together before your throne and we will sing the song of Moses and celebrate the day that is a thousand times better than Christmas, the day for which we're all looking forward to, the last day when all justice will be realized and we will know nothing but love and peace and goodness as we live in your presence. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.